Hello, everyone, and welcome to Penny for a Tale. Uh, I am Mitchell, host of Such Endeavors, and today we have an awesome guest today, uh, Jonathan M. Tweet. So without uh, further was it gilding the lily, uh, I'll let Jonathan introduce himself and what he's been up to and, and is doing in his past and everything. Let's have, let's have your backstory. You bet. So, um, well, my backstory and my current story uh, have blended together because uh, last month Atlas Games released uh, Over the Edge, which was a game that they originally published uh, back in 92. Um, so I've been doing role-playing game design since um, 87 when Mark Ray, Higgin, and I, we did uh, Ars Magica. And... Um, that led him to do Vampire. I ended up doing Over the Edge and getting hired on at Wizards of the Coast, where um, in Everway, another game that we're going to be relaunching at some point. And uh, a lot of people have heard of me because I worked on third edition. I was the lead designer on that. That was a really exciting project to work on. Um, had tons of resources from Wizards of the Coast sort of all converging on that project to make it really successful. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've done a bunch of other games since then. Um, and one of the new things in my life is uh, I've started doing evolution communication for kids. So um, after years of working on a manuscript, I finally finished a book called uh, Grandmother Fish. And it's the first book to teach evolution to preschoolers. And I enjoyed that enough that um, I turned around and did uh, a pair of card games, Clades and Clades Prehistoric, also for kids, but uh, grumps can play them. And that's, uh, they teach basic evolutionary relationships among animals. So now I'm sort of going back and forth between, you know, my standard role-playing stuff that uh, people know me for and my new evolution for kids angle. <laughs> Good time to be alive. It is, yeah, this is uh, the glory years of role-playing. Yeah, you know, everything's just coming to the head, and there's so much on the market, and so much creativity, uh, yeah. collaboration, everything. It's definitely an awesome time. Um, I mean, who knew, you know, uh, if you had told me 30 or 40 years ago that uh, people would learn to play Dungeons and Dragons in order to fit in in middle school, <laughs> I would have been pretty excited and maybe not believed it. So yeah, it's a it's a good time. I know. I, I wish I could go back. Not middle school, but just, just playing. I think just that part. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, Jonathan, thank, for, thank you for being on the show. Um, uh, as people can see on my left uh, is the book Over the Edge, which will kind of be what we'll be talking about today. And then afterwards, we will be playing a one shot of it. I'm super excited. There's the book again. It's everywhere. They kind of spawn in random locations. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing. Um, so the over-the-edge setting is is very interesting, to say the least. Okay, what yeah. were some of your inspirations in developing the setting? Sure. So um, I created the original over-the-edge campaign when um, I thought I was done doing game design. I had had sort of a rocky break up with my former best friend and business partner and I didn't want to do role-playing games anymore. I was selling mutual funds and that was going to be my career, but I wanted to do role-playing games in my, um, 
in my spare time for fun. And since it was just for me, I could make it as weird and as uh, rules light as I wanted. I didn't have to worry about whether anyone else would like it. And that's kind of where Over the Edge came from. So one inspiration was um, Naked Lunch and the other work by William S. Burroughs. So Robin Laws um, kind of as a thought experiment said, well, what, what would uh, William S. Burroughs role-playing game be like? And for me, it became not just a thought experiment, but like, oh yeah, but this, he turned me on to William S. Burroughs and um, obviously that was a big inspiration. Another inspiration that no one has heard of is a game called Twilight's Edge that some random fan in my podunk little town in the Midwest invented and ran for me at a convention. And, <laughs> um, one of the things that, it, it, was, it was modern day with supernatural and weird stuff. So in that way, it's like over the edge. Uh, but what struck me when we went to play it was my character was like a millionaire race car driver, martial artist. <laughs> and I thought, you can't let someone play a cool character right away. They have to start at first level and be kind of worthless and they have to build up to being anything special. Yeah. <laughs> but then we played, it was like, this is a ton of fun. It's actually kind of fun to be an international millionaire race car driver martial artist. And so that helped me sort of open my eyes and unclench a little bit. So when I introduced Over the Edge to my friends, I would just let them create whatever character they wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, and they didn't have to know about the setting because it was the modern day and they were going to fly in an airplane to this weird island that they didn't have to know anything about ahead of time. They didn't have to know the rules because they were free form. They didn't have to know the setting. So they could just invent whatever character they wanted. And that uh, freedom was really what the whole setting was for. So it is a really weird setting. It's got lots of really cool stuff, but what I want to emphasize is the whole point of that setting is to enable the imagination of the players, to let them create really interesting characters. And that's even more important than the setting. The setting is just there to serve that purpose. So yeah, the setting has weird things, you know, mutant centipedes and uh, baboons and conspiracies and you know, aliens and uh, ancient supernatural curses and all the kind of stuff that you can think of all thrown together in sort of a, a dystopian uh, society that it's it's kind of like an exaggerated version of America, yeah. where you know it's um, it's sort of tawdry and um, the culture is low and uh, you know it's it's just a um, it's kind of a degenerate version of our society. Yeah, I I, I adored uh, reading it. Um... But like, uh, what was the, I mean, you, you talked about the, the homebrew and, and some other things, was there like a, a spark that truly kind of ignited this, this whole thing that kind of eventually came to this fully fleshed out world where like anything is possible and you can make anything. Yeah. So what's interesting is that when the game, um, started like the, uh, it was just a campaign for my friends and me. Um, and, uh, there wasn't that much to the setting. I made up stuff sort of as we went along mm -hmm. uh, because in the same way that the players can invent whatever they want, um, I as the game master could invent whatever I wanted. So a lot of the iconic stuff that's in the game just sort of 
appeared as uh, out of play, right? And so there are two uh, very different kinds of taxi services. And I just invented those because as soon as somebody said, uh, you know, I tried to get a taxi from the airport, I wanted to give them a choice between, well, you can call this one or you can call that one. And then I had to um, almost a level of farce, you know, create these very different um, options so that you're making a personal choice when you choose to go with Total Taxi or Giovanni's Cabs, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and so um, a lot of my game design work is in reaction against something rather than being inspired by something. And my, what I was reacting to at this point, so in some ways my inspiration was the game that uh, Mark Reinhagen and I had done, Ars Magica, which you do start out kind of lowly and have to work your way up. And you do have to know the rules pretty well to make a character like you want the character to be. And in mm -hmm. fact, you kind of need to know something about uh, Europe in the year 1198 if you want to create a character that's canonical and historically accurate. And so my experience with uh, Ars Magica was if I were going to bring a new player on board, they had to learn a lot and they had to learn what they had to do and what they were not allowed to do. And they had to go through a long process of spending points on their skills. And, um, and so in some ways, the inspiration of Over the Edge is I'm tired of doing that. Yeah. I, I want to cut right to the fun. I want to say, hey, what kind of character do you want to create and, and let people's imaginations go? <laughs> Rampant to the wild. Uh, so we have a question from, from chat. Uh, Resident Moon says, what is the reward if the characters are already, and I quote, Banff? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's not a game about accumulating experience points or uh, gaining gold pieces. Uh, you, you do increase your abilities over time. It's a more freeform system. Um, but... One of the key features of the characters now is that when you create your character, you define what sort of trouble they get into. And if you look at lots of characters, especially in, if you have something like a Star Trek or whatever, right? Captain Kirk is gonna get in trouble because he's gonna be tempted to break the prime directive when there's a pretty girl or something like that, right? And so it's, it's these, it's the curiosity that gets the character in trouble or it's the, the passion that gets them to fight for a lost cause or, or what have you. So in the new version of the game, you as a player define ahead of time, this is how I'm gonna get screwed over. This is how I'm going to do the thing that's not maybe the same So the reward is you get to you get to sort of pursue these goals, and everyone at the table, you know, instead of complaining, oh, you're the chaotic neutral rogue and you're throwing us off. It's like, well, no, your whole job as you're the you're the character who really likes to collect weird tissue samples from bizarre mutants or whatever, and everyone knows that. And when you go off the rails a little bit in pursuit of that, you're you're playing your character and you're getting the kind of fun that everybody, um, you know, is sort of primed to already see you get. Yeah, definitely. And thank you for the question, uh, Resident Moon. And for those in chat, feel free to ask away. I'll get to them as soon as possible. 
so the system uh, uses uh, D6s, uh, and I have the, the dice right here. I'm, oh, you got the official dice. That's yeah, I don't know if I'm going to open it until I'm a player. Right. Uh, it's going to be very important to me, so I'm waiting for that moment. <laughs> um, but why did you choose uh, the system uh, as we know it, uh, and kind of what was the process along that line? Sure. So um, with the original version back in 92, uh, it was really freeform, but when you got to combat or whatever, it, it was kind of familiar. You roll to see who goes first, you make an attack roll, the other person makes a defense roll, you subtract numbers, maybe you multiply it by a damage factor. You know, it, you have hit points. It's in that way, kind of standard round-by-round round combat. And what I wanted to do was uh, create something much faster and much um, uh, much more flexible. And I was inspired by uh, Apocalypse World by Vincent Baker. And I love the dice roll system in Apocalypse World because you, you never, if you roll low, that doesn't mean nothing happens. That means something bad happens to you. So that die roll is both trying to make something good happen and trying to avoid something bad with a single roll. So it's twice as important as a D20 roll in Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Well, you like dice rolls that are more important because they're more interesting and you can get more done with them. And so with the new over the edge system, my quest was sort of how much can I put writing on a single throw of the dice? And so you roll two six-sided dice, you're always rolling two six-sided dice. You're either trying to get a seven or eight, depending on whether you're taking the initiative or, or defending. And then depending on how your ability stack up against the opposition, you might have the option of re-rolling some of your dice or the game master might be able to force you to re-roll your good dice. Um, and so that single throw, that can resolve a fight, that can resolve two weeks of surveilling somebody that you're trying to keep on top of. Like you, you can just um, cut to the chase and figure out what, what is the result of the thing that you are trying to do rather than incrementally simulating every step of it. So like if you're in a movie, you're watching someone surveil somebody for two weeks, you're not gonna see every moment played out for two weeks you're gonna see a little montage that lets you know that two weeks have gone by and you're gonna cut to the chase of whether they have succeeded or not or what happens. And so that's what this system is. So breaking free from that old sort of round by round, step by step system um, and just getting right to the point that the players wanna know is, do I succeed or not? Does something really good happen or something really bad? And that's what the dice give you. Yeah, I was reading it. It sounded so fun, especially the uh, the reverence for uh, lots and, and the casting yes. of lots. Yes. Uh, I think it... You know, traditionally, people would cast lots. They would throw dice uh, to divine the future or to see who's the cursed person that needs to be thrown over the ship's, uh, you know, board that would, when there's a storm or whatever. And, and so for me, it's sort of like a callback to, you know, this classic kind of divination yeah yeah so i put sort of like a little ritual around it like you're supposed to 
keep those two dice as your special dice that you can't swap out. You have to use the same dice over and over so that you develop kind of a relationship with them. Like these are the dice that screwed you over last time. <laughs> using them. And um, uh, I think that adds to the, uh, uh, to sort of the charm that uh, players tend to already sort of uh, have little rituals about their dice or, or uh, that sort of thing. And so, um, I'm just playing that up. Yeah, it's um, you know, the, despite the, anyone any gamer's background, they are always superstitious about their dice in yeah. any walks of life, all the time. <laughs> do they line them up with the sixes on top so that they'll you know get sixes next time, or do they line them up with the ones on top to like to balance out the ones and try to get sixes next time? Like it's yeah. yeah. There's always that one person in the group where they're just going to roll low no matter what happens and everyone's just kind of like, good job, buddy. <laughs> yeah. so one of the important things with that system is it has to be possible for the players to lose. It has to be possible for a character to fail. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times failing is like getting hurt while you are succeeding or um, – coming to the attention of the enemy while you are succeeding at the other thing that you're doing. So the plot can keep moving. You don't reach to a dead end, but you have some sort of consequence or some uh, some sort of blowback. Yeah, definitely. And as a GM, I, I just love that tool set. Yeah, good. Yeah, there are, you know, a lot of combats are set up, like in Dungeons and Dragons, when we set up third edition combat, the idea was, well, really, you're gonna win. Yeah. Right, you're gonna roll so many dice over the course of that battle that you you're gonna win um, unless something goes wrong. And then lots of game masters will, you know, they'll fudge the dice to prevent characters from losing. Yeah. And so this is sort of more hardcore. You can just roll those dice and you have failed, and and now you have to deal with that. And that's. You know, in lots of um, fiction, but movies or, um, or literature, like failing is part of the fun. Failing is part of the drama. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's definitely um, uh, an emphasized part throughout the book. And uh, let me see if I can grab my dice again. And one of my favorite uh, things is, is uh, people can see you have the, the plus and, and the minus. Uh, yeah. So uh, can you explain what, what that means for, for the player? <laughs> sure. Um, so one of the things that um, I wanted to add was a nonlinear uh, element to the die roll. So not only are you trying to roll high and not roll low, but if either of your dice comes up a three, that's called a bad twist. Not exactly a fumble, because you can succeed with a three if you roll a three and a six you're going to succeed at your task but the three means some unexpected negative thing happens and likewise a four uh is a good twist and that means something good happens even if you roll a four to two and you fail whatever happens that that four indicates there's something else uh that's good and what that does is it it sort of provides another dimension like a perpendicular track that you're on you're trying to succeed and you're trying to avoid failure but there are also these sort of unexpected things that are secondary or tangential to success or failure and so um, again it creates this discontinuous result right like you can fail 
and you can fail and have a bad twist. And those are very different from each other. Whereas like rolling a five and rolling a four are not very different from each other. Like if you're rolling, a, if you're rolling this total and your total comes up to five, it's a failure, it comes up to four, it's a failure. Well, that's not very interesting. But whether one of those dice is a three, okay, now that's suddenly interesting because that gives you um, uh, uh, sort of access to yeah. the unexpected thing that, um, uh, that, that results from your actions. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, Shadzar, uh, we are currently talking about uh, the new system over the edge, but of course, if you have any question about D&D, uh, feel free to ask. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so D&D is all very much on this incremental uh, result, right? Like you hit or miss, and then you roll damage, and maybe you'll do more damage, or maybe you'll do less damage, but there's, there isn't... Um, there isn't that uh, surprising extra result. And that's what I was trying to get, is to add more um, uh, more of an unknown and more surprise into that dice roll. Again, how much drama can you get out of one single throw of the dice? That was my challenge. Yeah, fair. Uh, so, you know, the writing style is pretty unique. Uh, it feels like a conversation between the author and the GM. What was your what was kind of like your thought process behind it and kind of this tongue-in-cheek uh, conversation? Yeah. Um, so I, I've been, uh, you know, playing Dungeons & Dragons since 1967. Um, and a couple of years ago, I bought um, an adventure, like a Judge's Guild adventure that uh, I had always wanted when I was a kid and couldn't afford. And now I bought it. I read it. And that in, in the introduction... The author speaks directly to the player or to the game master, you know, like, here's how I run encounters. I think you should run it this way and, and try that or whatever. And it, and it reminded me that in the early days, it really was a hobbyist endeavor, right? That the, the people who were creating these adventures or games were hobbyists sort of sharing their personal notes with the other hobbyists. And you, you definitely get that feel in like original Dungeons and Dragons where Gygax and Arneson would say, well, you know, you can use this map from this other game and use that as your uh, setting. And uh, you can use this combat system from this other game we did if you want. And it's all very, um, it's all very transparent that there's a gamer behind those words speaking to another gamer. And over the years, games have become way more polished. And now there's sort of an authorial distance between the game designers and the, uh, and the listener. And in fact, if, you, if you're a corporation and you are running a, a line, you kind of don't want the individual authors to each have a voice. You want everybody to be able to buy whatever supplement that comes up from your game and they'll get sort of the same voice. Yeah. And so I've been trying to hearken uh, back to that early sense of, hey, I'm a gamer and I'm doing this because I love role-playing games and you're reading this because you love role-playing games and so I can speak directly to you. And the like, other great thing for uh, Over the Edge is because it's in the modern day, then I can make all sorts of sardonic comments or, you know, side observations whether it's about human nature or politics or culture or whatever and and those sort of carry a sort of weight that they wouldn't have in a science fiction setting or a fantasy setting uh, so it really is an opportunity to 
get across the feel of the game of the sort of um, not taking anything too seriously uh, while, while dealing maybe with real things like, um, you know, the, the way that brands have taken over uh, our free market system and now are everywhere, right? So that gets done up uh, and, and there's a sort of snide comments about that in the game. And uh, it really goes back to that choice I made years ago to have a game set in the modern day where people would be able to bring in everything they know and all their experience from just living in the modern world in order to enrich the experience. Yeah, definitely. I think one of my uh, uh, favorite ones, this kind of goes into the next question uh, in a way, and we'll, we'll definitely get to it, but um, where can we find you at Gen Con coming up? Oh, yeah. So I'm going to be mostly uh, at the Atlas Games booth on Saturday and Sunday, a little bit on Thursday. Um, and uh, I'll be at the um, Innies uh, for sure um, on Friday night. And like everybody, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, Atlas booth on Saturday and Sunday would be the best time to find me. Uh, and I know in the book it says, you know, we're, we're generally restricted to one karma slot. Uh, but it also says if we if we come by and give Jonathan Tweet $10, we get another one. Is there a receipt for this? <laughs> you know what? If you give me 10 bucks, I will write you up a receipt, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did do a little stint in um, free-to-play games where the – Corporation always gives you the opportunity to pay a little extra in order to uh, get over the restrictions that the game designer has placed on you, right? And and karma is sort of the group's uh, good luck, and um, uh, it's a it's a benefit that you can draw on when you need to to, to improve your roles. And yeah, if you pay me ten dollars, you can bank two doses of karma instead of just one at a time, and, and um, that'll make your make your characters more powerful. Yes. <laughs> also, you know, send cash or the mail. That's no problem. <laughs> Any of these things. It's definitely one of the things that kind of uh, jumped out to me from the pages, which kind of definitely made it feel more like a uh, an author talking to the, the, the reader that's instead right. of the uh, the other games, which is just kind of like, uh, read this. It's a setting and stuff. <laughs> that's and, You know, it, and that's in there. One, because it's fun, funny to write. That was one of my most fun uh, sentences. <laughs> but, but also it sets the tone for the game. The game is, it's irreverent. Uh, it makes fun of the modern world and um, the courts of modern society. And, uh, and, and you, have to, you have to think about what is being said, right? Like I'm, I, sometimes I say things that aren't true. Many times I will tell you, you may not do this. You, this is against the rules. Well, it's a role-playing game. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was just, uh, you know, as someone who reads a lot of, a lot of these books, it was, it was very uh, refreshing to, to feel that, uh, to see that yeah, writing I'm, style. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm sure it had some people scratching their heads. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, is there an address? Uh, is this real? <laughs> Um, all right, so we're, we're going to hop back uh, uh, historically into your backstory. Um, so yeah. as a game designer, what were the greatest lessons you learned while writing D&D 3rd Edition? 
Yeah, so um, I came to really appreciate hit points. Uh, so when I was a teenager, uh, D&D hit points were one of the things that I thought was the goofiest, right? Like, oh, the paladin has 70 hit points, and so they can fall from a tower and not get hurt or, you know, get hit by a ballista and they're fine. And um, I thought that was silly. I like to play RuneQuest where you had a very limited number of hit points and, and even a high level character can just get like that spear impales them in the leg and they bleed out and that's it. Right. And, um, I thought that was more realistic and, uh, uh and it, going back to Dungeons and Dragons, it really drove home that the advantage of the hit point system is exactly that it's not realistic. Like, I mean, no one wants to actually play out a realistic combat. It's too brutal. It's too, um, uh, uncertain. And so that, you know, I sort of came around to the way that this game plays, the hit points give you sort of, a, uh, someone suggested you can think of them as they're your script immunity, right? Like how, how long can your character go before, okay, now you're in danger. You start out, you're not in danger and gradually become more and more in danger. And that uh, it was very satisfying. Whereas a game like RuneQuest, where the very first roll could just take you out. And that happened in one of our games where a character, um, you know, I, I had some monster shoot a diseased arrow at somebody with the idea that, oh, I'm going to give them a disease. Oh, I killed them. Uh, I, you know, I, and there was a yeah. one shot. So I one shotted this beloved character just because, well, that's the way the dice rolled. And uh, with hit points, you don't have that problem. Yeah, that's fair. So uh, Shazar has a question. Yeah. Uh, when working on 3E, what did you feel was a thing most needing changing from 2E? And why did you perform such uh, sacrilege and change it? That is that, is that question. <laughs> I think the, the big sacrilegious thing was getting rid of percentile strength. Um, and there were there were some predictions that the gamers were going to howl at having percentile strength taken away, but it did not seem to be a problem when, when it uh, came down to it. Um, for me, the biggest difference with second edition, between second edition and third is with second edition, they seem to want to genericize the game. Like, um, this could be about King Arthur, or this could be about Caesar, or um, and had lots of historical references. And and for third edition, it was like, no, Dungeons and Dragons is its own thing. There's enough lore, there's enough love and um, history here that we can just make D&D &D based on D&D. &D. We don't, it's not have to be based on anything. So um, it was kind of a systemic change where we just sort of what's cool about D&D &D and can we make that cooler so tools like axes okay how about we give dwarves a really big axe that deals more damage oh that's cooler right and so third edition was like we're going to do D&D &D only more D&D-ish and second edition seemed more like we're going to tame D&D &D and make it uh, unobjectionable and and uh, generic so that you can sort of do anything with it. 
Definitely, definitely. <laughs> and we got rid of Thacko. That's... <laughs> Every once in a while, they still complained about it, but most people were very grateful to see that go away. Yeah, so um, what, what setting specifically did you work on uh, for 3E? So, um, setting-wise, I was one of the people who, you know, was into using Greyhawk as the default setting. I felt like, um, if nothing else, you wanted names for the deities. You didn't want God of Strength or whatever, like you had in second edition, because it's just not that interesting. Um, and so, uh, Greyhawk seemed like the um, a, a good example for the default system or setting, especially because we could monkey with it a little bit. So the god of the paladins uh, in Greyhawk has a uh, originally had a battle axe as his uh, weapon, which is cool if you already know what a paladin is and you know that they usually use swords, but in Greyhawk they use axes, right? But if you're coming to D&D and you want to learn what a paladin is like, you want to learn the default basic paladin that is going to be familiar with you. And that's a, that's a knight with a sword. Yeah. So we go in there and like, okay, this guy's favorite weapon is not going to be an ax anymore. It's going to be a sword. And there were some complaints about that from the people who were really tied to the Greyhawk setting. But the whole point of having a default setting is to, to support default level play and not get in the way so that was the that was the setting that i had if had really any uh influence on and only with it as sort of the default so like um oh we got a new question uh from shadzar again uh how did you feel eberron uh fit in a DD with all the pre-existing settings some like red steel and birthright uh which were already so from similar from 2e era yeah, so I've never been a big fan of the uh, setting. So I like I wrote for Dark Sun and I wrote for Mastika and and those are cool. But from a business angle, it seemed like a big mistake to take your audience and split it into well, there's Dark Sun players and they'll never buy a Red Steel product, and there's Red Steel players and they'll never buy uh, Forgotten Realms, you know, or, or a um, Hollow Earth or whatever the, the different settings were, right? Mastika was part of the Forgotten Realms, but different because on a different continent. So um, that sort of, just sort of never made any sense. Planescape, like there's so many settings. There were even like these little one-offs like Jack Andor, this little three book set of barbarians versus necromancers. Like, really? Like, and so, um, I, I like Eberron and I like Keith Baker, uh, and but it never seemed like the best idea to to keep splitting the the audience. Uh, you know, it's like like in Dark Sun, sort of the same way. Hey, uh, Dark Sun's kind of cool. I liked writing for it. It was funky, um, but but was it a good idea to get? you know, a one more uh, world out there that's incompatible with all the other worlds? Probably not. So one of the first things that uh, Ryan Dancy did when he took over as the uh, the brand manager for Dungeons and Dragons was he would strip um, the, the 
logos off of uh, products that were supposed to be destined for a particular product. So there was there was a product that was going to be um, for Ravenloft. It was a Ravenloft monster book. And he just said, take Ravenloft off of there and make it an AD&D monster book. And it sold better. <laughs> well, yeah. So, uh, so I like Ebron. I think it was cool that they did, you know, the, the bake off and got a bunch of people to, um, to pitch their different products. And, um, but, but yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not sure how much good it did the game line. Yeah. How does it kind of feel, you know, working on third edition and then seeing it evolve from fourth to now five E and then, uh, offshoots like Pathfinder. Well, first of all, I'm really grateful to the Pathfinder people for keeping my uh, version of Dungeons and Dragons alive when they went forth. Um, I mean, I I didn't like where Forth was going from the beginning, uh, and I, I didn't make any friends in the R and D department <laughs> telling people how much I didn't like how. <laughs> um, but. But you know, with third edition, we tried to make it more D and D than ever. And with fourth edition, it sort of seemed like they were doing like, here's here's a whole new version of D and D the way we like it, right? So, um, like in the in the original player's handbook, there wasn't a build for the guy that hits somebody really hard with a two handed weapon. Well, yeah. lots of people want to play that guy, right? Um, and uh, so, you know, you had cool new things, tieflings, right, and uh, um, uh, you know, warlocks, whatever, but but they they changed the alignment system, they got rid of chaotic good. Chaotic good is the most popular alignment. They got rid of it. Like, that they didn't seem to be doing things with the players in mind. They seemed to be like... Uh, you know, here's a here's a new way that we we think will be a better way to play D and D. We yeah. think that you should play D and D. Now they did a bunch of really great stuff mechanically. Like I think the healing surges really took the pressure off the clerics. Clerics are impossible to balance um, because they carry around so much of what the other characters are relying on in terms of healing. And so, if the if a cleric is balanced with another class then they're going to give up so many of their spells to their friends that they're kind of, they feel weak to play. Yeah. And if they're built strong enough so that you can heal a bunch of people and still be a powerful character. Well, now you're, now you're too powerful and the best class or best party is for clerics because <laughs> powerful as a regular character, plus they each have a bunch of healing. Well, that's, you can't balance that. So, um, uh, I really liked the way, uh, fourth edition handled a lot of stuff um but it just seemed it was way more gamey right like they took away uh instead of being a 30 foot range now it was six squares yeah uh, so it takes you one step away from feeling like you are in the world and uh yeah i was not too surprised that uh it didn't you know that the reception wasn't great i think fifth edition is marvelous um and I, sometimes I wonder how close we could have come in the year 2000 to doing something like fifth edition that was more streamlined. And, yeah. 
but you know, coming from second edition where there were so many complicated things, there were so many kits and so many different kind of weapons with different uh, bonuses versus different kinds of armor and like all sorts of stuff. Um, it seemed like what the audience wanted was something crunchier and, and they loved it. People sure love third edition. So we did that right. But, but uh, I think fifth edition is a great advance in terms of um, like there's, there's kind of no reason not to play Dungeons and Dragons. It's not too complicated. It's not too, you know, anything you can play it. You create a character pretty easily. Um, you know, the, the feats are more powerful so that they're more interesting and that's nice. Uh, I'm really happy to see Dungeons and Dragons doing uh, really well. Yeah, and it's definitely helped the whole industry as a whole just to have, you know, Critical Role and all, all sorts of stuff. 5e is just apparent really? and out there. That's right. There's a great combination of people can look online and see how games are played and then go find a game that's actually pretty easy to play. Yeah. So that's think that that's great yeah so i've you know there there was you uh and also monty cook uh two people who who wrote for very um what i'll call crunchy games uh and then are now writing uh very narrative games you know over the edge and numenera for monty cook um why do you think that that is is it you know, or do you, do you feel like you'll maybe one day write again for a, a crunchy system, or is this just a preference over time? So if, if you look at, you know, my history, I've done both, right? So Ars mm -hmm. Magata is super crunchy, in a lot of ways crunchier than Dungeons & Dragons. Mm -hmm. But then I did Over the Edge, super freeform. I did Everway, right? So that's the, that's the game where you use cards, uh, to like define what your character is going to be and uh, very visual. Um, uh, so that was the, one of the least crunchy games around. Um, and then after Dungeons and Dragons, I did a D20 version of Gamma World called Omega World, which medium crunchy, uh, lots of cool stuff and big explosions. So that was fun. Um, uh, personally, I don't have a lot of interest in taking a long time to to do a combat or to do mm -hmm. a scene or whatever like i i want to focus on what the characters choose and then see what happens based on that choice i'm i'm kind of tired of rolling 20-sided dice over and over and over again like okay we've decided to have this fight now we're going to sit here and we're going to you know do this thing over and over again until we see how many hit points we lose in having the fight well um, I would, uh, so yeah, I want things to be more freeform and faster. And I can imagine sort of Monty going through the same thing. He did his big D20 stuff, like he, mm -hmm. Iron Heroes by Mike Merles and whatever. And, um, but I think we've, we have seen what happens when you try to get crunchier and crunchier because we remember games from the eighties and nineties that were super complicated. I know Monty used to work on Rollmaster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's just, once you kind of see how these games work, you can find ways to emphasize the imagination and the story and um, get a lot more of what you're looking for with less work, basically. Yeah, definitely. 
<laughs> well, it's much appreciated. I definitely love the the things people have been putting out within the last last couple of years. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And the whole indie uh, movement, you know, Ron Edwards and uh, Vincent Baker and that crew, they've really done a, uh, a great job. Luke Crane. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of challenging what people expect uh, from a from a role-playing game. Um, so, you know, you're, you're working on other projects now. Um, and... Um... Uh, specifically, uh, as you kind of mentioned before, uh, relating to educating people about evolution, uh, namely Grandmother Fish and uh, was it Clades? Am I saying that right? Clades. Clades. Right, right. Clades. <laughs> uh, so what is it that inspired, inspires you to create games around this subject? Yeah, so, um, so I've done two evolution projects for kids now, and one is a, a book, right? So it's the, the first book to teach evolution to preschoolers. And then the other is a card game, uh, and that is uh, clades, like you said, and that teaches evolutionary relationships among animals. Um, so when my daughter was little, she's 24 now, but when she was a preschooler, uh, I wanted to tell her where we came from. Like parents throughout history around the world have always told their kids where we came from. Uh, and if you go to a bookstore, you can find Adam and Eve books for little kids, but there was nothing that would explain Darwin to a preschooler. So I started working on it. I thought, well, I'll do it. I'll write that book. Um, And I worked on it for 15 years until I finally sort of had the inspiration of what the book needed to make it really work. And then luckily by then there was Kickstarter. So I found it. And we went on Kickstarter and raised $30,000 and self-published and sold out. And now we got picked up by Macmillan. And so Grandmother Fish, it's uh, sold around the world now. It's in Italian. It's in Chinese. It's going to be in Japanese. So the, the inspiration was, we know where we came from now. Like, And if you put 15 years of work into it, you can figure out how to teach that to a preschooler. Yeah. I put 15 years of work into it. And figured out how to teach that to a preschooler. Um, I want kids to go to kindergarten knowing things that Aristotle did not know. Right? Like we we know we know we're a tiny little uh, dot of a planet circling a little spark of a star in a vast uh, universe of nothingness, uh, uh, populated by tiny other little sparks. We know that. We know that the Earth has been here for billions of years, and that there used to be dinosaurs and that there's DNA in our cells that uh, controls what kind of proteins get made. And like, wow, we know so much about who we are and what the universe is. And now the trick is uh, teaching that to kids. And that's, that, that's where I came in. And I did, I did enough research on uh, evolution to do Grandmother Fish that uh, that's what inspired Clades, the, the card. So one of the things that I learned is what a clade is and how to <laughs> right? So a clade is a branch of the family tree. So um, if you if you look at crustaceans, uh, that's a category, but it's not a clade because one branch of the crustacean family is insects. Mm-hmm. Insects don't count as crustaceans, so the term crustacean means this branch of the family tree minus insects. Mm-hmm. If you put the whole tree together, you add insects into there, now you've got pancrustacea, they call it. That's the clade of all the animals ever evolved from that 
an original population of crustaceans, including all the hexapods. So that concept of what a clade is, is really powerful. And if you can teach that to kids and they understand, oh, birds and lizards go together and, and, and turtles, they're all sauropsids, right? And a turtle's not a lizard and a bird's not a lizard, um, but they are all this one family, the sauropsids. Yeah, that's amazing. Um... Uh, so we have a, a comment, you know, uh, from South uh, 2012, uh, who says teaching evolution to kids is a very worthwhile goal and wholeheartedly approve, uh, especially, you know, keeping kids interested or getting kids interested in the science and, you know, questioning the world around them. And, uh, yeah, so uh, he, he South 2012 is a biologist. So we have a we have a scientist uh, in okay. our chat. <laughs> story on that is um, my original idea for what to do with this book was I was going to pay to self-publish it as a digital product out of my own money uh, and it was would have like low production values but then I could say well I, I got my book out and that's the thing that I really wanted to do but when I would tell people especially parents that I was doing an evolution book for kids their eyes would light up <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'm on to something. This is not just my pet project. There's a lot of people out there who would respond to this. So it's got to be a beautiful hardback book that people can buy for their kids. It can't just be a crappy digital thing that I'm trying to make cheaply. Yeah, definitely. And I have really found that to be true that the, you know, all creation myths are sort of the thing that um, people look to, to see what their identity is and who they are. And and most identity, most, most of these myths are like, we're, we're the people who are descended from this, these ancestors and those people over there are different. And yeah. the evolution story is, no, we're all one family. All, all humanity is one family and all the animal kingdom is one big family. And boy, kids love to learn that. I got a, um, found a tweet today from a guy who said, he's probably read this book 50 times to his kid. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh that's that's really really nice yeah, that's, that's awesome <laughs> will it uh will it be at gen con that's a good question so clades the card game will definitely be at gen con because that's going to be uh, at the atlas booth uh atlas is uh distributing it um but yeah now that you think about it i should see if there's like a bookseller um, at Gen Con that would be able to carry it. Yeah, it's yeah, a good idea. Definitely, yeah. I'd love to pick it up for my my kid, personally. Yeah. <laughs> you could, I would love for people to call all the brick-and-mortar bookstores around them and ask for it um, because that's how stores often learn about books is um, through people who are passionate enough to, to <laughs> find it. So um, I, I have a an ex-girlfriend from uh, Barcelona. Uh, so we, boy, it's been 30 years uh, uh, since we've seen each other. She got hold of me the other day because she has a bookstore and someone came into her bookstore asking if they had this book. And she saw it was by me and she got back in touch with me. So <laughs> yeah, going to a bookstore and asking for Grandmother Fish is the, the best way that you can help us. Excellent. Will do. And for people who are curious, uh, my Nightbot just posted. You can find Over the Edge at Atlas Games, and uh, you see the Grandmother Fish uh, link right up there in the, the comments. If you're watching on YouTube, it'll be right below us uh, in the details section. So make sure to support it uh, and, and, and 
check it out. <laughs> All right, so we have time for uh, two questions. Uh, so one is from uh, Shadzar, um, who asks, um, uh, you know, you just referenced uh, one family. Um, though D&D, um, they want to know, why was race never changed to species in D&D? Because uh, it was 1999, right? I mean, that was... 20 years ago yeah uh, and and also species is a modern term like maybe it should have been turned changed to kind or kindred i kind of like kind mm -hmm. right like if there's a tavern where they don't serve elves right you can see the bartender say get back to your kind or whatever mm -hmm. like that that would be uh medieval definitely well thank you for your question question shazar uh and so i have one final question before we kind of uh, wrap up here and prepare for the, the game to come. Uh, what are some quick tips you can give me for the Over the Edge game and also for my players? Right, so you're going to be running it? Yep, okay. yep. So um, one big piece of advice is um, in a lot of games player the player character needs to earn whatever it is they want to do. Mm -hmm. And so um, like if they want to uh, convince somebody to help them, then they've got to roll dice. And if they fail, then they, then nothing happens. Um, and it's way more interesting to let them get what they want and then use dice to determine how good that turns out to be. Mm -hmm. It's more interesting to succeed at what you want and then regret it than to fail at what you uh, yeah. fail at. And then the other trick that I put into Over the Edge is um, giving people, giving the players out of character knowledge so that it uh, heightens the tension, mm -hmm. right? So that if you give them enough information that they know they need to be worried about something, but not enough information to keep their character safe, then, then that's more interesting. It's more interesting to know that there's an astral vampire in the party at, you know, somewhere. Yeah. And then not to know. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so anything for the, the players? Uh, yeah. So I would say for the players, um, don't play it safe, right? Like a lot of, a lot of role-playing sort of originated from the idea that you're trying to maximize your results. You're trying to minimize the damage you take and maximize the gold pieces you find or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and over the edge is not built for that over the edge is built, you know, for you to do the more interesting thing, like let your character's passion run away with them. Let, you know, uh, do, do the thing that is, is imprudent, but interesting. Awesome. Yeah. And it's definitely one of my favorite aspects of the book was seeing kind of like the, uh, the explanation of the different kind of role playing styles and like, you know, challenging you to kind of be a little bit more of, uh, you know, I want to seek what's most exciting, what's yeah. dangerous, what's not safe, right. uh, to just further the story. That's right. Okay, you see a character in a movie and they're doing something that's kind of stupid, but it's that it's in character and you feel for them and it builds the tension and, and that's, that's drama. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's probably one of my, my greatest pet peeves when the players are like, oh, that's stupid to do. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's, it's going to lead to something way more interesting than if you just sat back in the, cor in the corner and watched it happen. That's 
<laughs> All right, guys. Uh, thank. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Plug, which is just of course. Uh, so over the edge came out in June, and there's a exciting uh, anthology of five scenarios that's going to come out in October, uh, called Welcome to the Island. So I've got a uh, adventure in there, and Justin Alexander who's oh. running the whole line. He's got uh, one, in, and he's got a really good idea, which is. He wants situations and not plots. He wants things where things can happen, but not a rigid line that's mm-hmm. things that are, um, are going along. And he's he has sort of gone back to the blackboard to figure out how to create the best story hooks to get characters involved in scenarios. And, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how this turns out. Awesome. Well, that answered actually maybe your psychic. Uh, what was it? South 2012 was like, what, what are some supplements that are coming out? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, so definitely. Um, oh, curious. Uh, so one, one more question, then we'll head out. Shazar asks, uh, is Over the Edge expected to be released on, like, Fantasy Grounds or, or Roll20? Whoa. I, I, that's a question for the publisher. I'll, uh, maybe I'll talk to them at Gen Con about that. Yeah, interesting. Good question. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, make sure to, once again, check out through the comments. Uh, atlasgames.com as well as grandmotherfish.com uh, make sure to support Jonathan Tweet as he's going through his journey check him out over at Gen Con check out the booth check out uh, check him out over at the Innies uh, and uh, stay tuned a little bit later tonight to watch our uh, uh, I guess flailings on the island uh, which is going to be an amazing time <laughs> Yeah. so Jonathan thank you once again for your time thanks very much this is great alright goodbye everyone Bye.